everyone and welcome to Building Voices, a podcast focused on conversations with people in the know on topical issues impacting disputes resolution and management in the construction industry. My name is Frances Gordon-Weeks and I'm an associate here in the London office of the ICE Disputes team at CMS. Today's topic of discussion is dispute avoidance in the construction and infrastructure sectors. And this is certainly a topic that will likely to be familiar to many of those of you who are listening and work in these sectors. So turning now to our guest. This morning, I have the pleasure of being joined by Sarah Grenfell, a well-established partner and solicitor advocate in the IT Disputes team. Sarah specialises in cross-border disputes in the infrastructure and construction and energy sectors. So, as I said earlier, today's podcast focuses on disputes avoidance in the construction and infrastructure sectors and follows on from the seminar that Sarah presented together with Terry D'Souza, a consultant in our team. She was also joined by senior members of HKA. Many of you will be familiar with HKA, a dispute avoidance and resolution firm providing advisory and expert services for the construction and engineering industries. So, Sarah, on to our first topic of discussion, the importance of records. As we both know, it it is an age-old problem that parties face in the context of a dispute where they have suffered a loss but are unable to provide relevant or sufficient evidence to demonstrate the loss suffered and or to evidence which party is culpable. Your presentation considered the importance of records in the context of disputes. Please can you expand further on this topic? Thank you, Francis. Uh, Thank you for the introduction and hello to everyone who is listening to this podcast. So in really simple terms, I just wanted to fast forward to when you're in a dispute uh, and what that actually means. Now, if you've got a dispute between parties, really it's either going to be about the terms of the contract and that is how they should be interpreted or construed Uh, the law that applies, the facts that give rise to the dispute, or a combination of some or all of these. Now, focusing in particular on the facts giving rise to the dispute, if these are disputed, then parties are going to have to provide evidence, which is really seeking to persuade the court or the arbitral tribunal that it's their version of events, which is the correct version. And this is normally done by way of a witness statement. So you will have a, a witness of fact and they will speak to what they recall having occurred at the relevant time, um, and the opposing side will do the same thing, and then it falls to the judge or arbitral tribunal to decide um, which version of events they consider to be um, to be the correct version. And it's really here that the difficulty lies, because human memory is a really complicated thing. We learn more about it all the time, um, but the most important aspect here in relation to record keeping is that human memory is quite unreliable. And that's not just my personal view. Um, I often find my own memory to be unreliable when I've worked on something and I'm trying to recall what happened many years later. Uh, But having also worked with witnesses of fact on cases, um, these days I really have no expectation that a witness will be able to recall something if it happened many years ago, particularly if they're not on that project anymore and they've worked on things since. Um, And and this is something that's really, it's been recognised by the courts and it's also been the subject of a report uh, recently published by the ICC and that report was titled uh, The Accuracy of Fact Witness Memory in International Arbitration. So, Francis, I just wanted to to start by referring to a court case because there's a a judge, um, it's Justice Legat, as he then was. He's now a Justice of the Supreme Court. And in a 2013 High Court case, um, and the case is Guessman SGPS SA in Credit Suisse, 
Um, he talked about um, the unreliability of human memory. Now, a podcast is not the right um, place really to be um, doing lengthy quotes from a, a case, but I actually think what he said was both interesting and important. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read out an excerpt uh, to you. So he said, an obvious difficulty which affects allegations and oral evidence based on recollection of events which occurred several years ago is the unreliability of human memory. And he really then went on to say that um, the best approach for a judge to adopt in the trial of a commercial case is to place little, if any, reliance at all on witness recollections of what was said in meetings and conversations and to base factual findings on inferences drawn from the documentary evidence and known or probable facts. And so, I mean, really, you can see where I'm heading here. It is this emphasis on documentary evidence and known or probable facts, which is important. And that really is record keeping. And so I just say there that you really face a far better chance of persuading a judge or tribunal that your version of events is correct if your version is supported by contemporaneous documents. And on a construction project, I mean, that might mean um, letters or emails, photographs, daily logs, monthly reports, programs, individual notebooks. Um, really, uh, the list is pretty lengthy. Um, and I'd sum that up by saying, look, if you're diligent in your record keeping, you're just going to find the process of proving your position a lot easier. Many thanks, Sarah. That's that's really helpful. And it, as you say, it seems that um, factual findings really are king and oral testimony has sort of potentially limited weight. So our clients really need to help themselves in terms of doing as much as they can to um, record the contemporaneous history of events. So um, turning now to disputes avoidance throughout the life cycle of a project, I can see from your presentation that you polled the audience and in particular you asked the question, are disputes in the construction sector unavoidable? I'd be really interesting to learn from you what kind of feedback you got from your audience and just in general what your thoughts are on this issue. It was really interesting to poll the audience while we were talking and, and what I really had wanted to see is whether their view might change across the, the course of the talk. And overwhelmingly, uh, people voted that, yes, they, they consider that disputes are avoidable. So actually, they weren't saying that there's, there's no chance of avoiding these, that they, they can take certain steps to avoid having a formal dispute in the first place. And really, um, I think this also accords with the results that we had in our inaugural survey on disputes avoidance. Um, so I, I don't think that all is lost um, on construction projects, and I don't think a dispute is inevitable, but I do think that there needs to be good planning from the outset in order to put yourself in, in the best position to avoid a dispute arising, um, or in winning that dispute um, if it does arise. Thanks, Sarah. It's good to know that people at least approach the dispute process um, with a sort of positive outlook, with the potential to avoid any disputes at all. So what is it that our clients should be doing uh, when an issue hits their desk? It'd be really interesting to hear from you, from your experience in terms of working with clients and helping them through disputes. Which tasks in particular should clients focus on in the earlier stages? And how will this initial work assist um, later down the line in the event that, that a dispute does become actionable? Well, I think one of the most important issues to be aware of is really what you're actually required to do under the contract, if anything, to preserve your rights. So the question you should be asking yourself is, what immediate steps do I need to take that are time sensitive? And an example of this would be, you know, so many contracts that you will see and that I see require a claim for something like force majeure or an extension of time or a variation. 
to be notified to the owner or employer. And it has to be done in a particular way and certain information needs to be provided. And particularly for force majeure and extension of time claims, there's often um, quite strict um, timelines that those sorts of notices need to be um, submitted within. And under English law, um, if a notice clause operates as a condition precedent, then failure to comply with that clause can result in a party losing its entitlement. But, I mean, one of the things I'd say here that I find quite interesting is the cultural differences that I see on cross-border disputes, because I would say it's not uncommon to come across a party that has actually been reluctant to follow the contract and to issue notices because there's a concern that that might be perceived as aggressive by their counterparty. Um, and then that added concern that that creates problems on site, on the project day to day, and they might not be given what they're asking for if if, um, if they come across as being um, overly reliant on the contract. I would say here that it's really important to recognise that the contract is you know, something that's been agreed between the parties in order to manage the project, to manage disputes if they arise. And it's, it's important for that reason that um, contractual notice provisions are followed. Now, in the presentation I gave, I drew this distinction between uh, regular contract review as a method of risk management. And, and that means being aware of what's in the contract, how the provisions interact and apply in any given scenario. And if an incident occurs, how best to respond according to the contract. But in relation to a particular incident occurring, um, there are other steps that parties might want to consider taking that can set themselves up both at the time and later on for arguing their position. So an example of this is a root cause analysis. You might have something that happens on site and you're not actually entirely sure whose fault it is. Um, uh, having taken a look at um, where fault lies under the contract, you might not know based upon the actual facts. So there might be some further investigations which need to be undertaken. And I'd say an important point here, coming back to my record keeping um, point that I, I'm trying to be ham hammering home, is really that um, you can lose the ability to do these sorts of investigations subsequently if you don't um, grasp the nettle at the time. And so um, that, that's something very much to be thinking about. Um, doing contemporaneously to the damage being caused. In relation to that, I'd say there are some cautionary points with document creation. The first is in relation to privilege. Uh, so if, if legal privilege applies, um, that allows a party to withhold from production to the other side a document that might otherwise be disclosable. And it's really best to consult with your legal counsel at the time um, to identify what might be privileged and to make sure a document's protected. And then the other thing is just about um, creating records when you're in a position where you're conscious that they might be disclosed subsequently and being thoughtful about what you actually record is another point to make there. Seems like the, the key takeaways really are um, for parties to really know, know the ins and outs of the contracts. And as you said, how notice provisions work and the information they need to um, to provide alongside notices. And, and also your, your comment there on the kind of the cultural aspects and how they might impact dispute management is really interesting um, in terms of perhaps parties aren't doing as much as they can purely because of um, the, the way that they, 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 they think the dispute should be approached as opposed to how the contract dictates to them um, the actions that they should be taking. Following on from that, I just wanted to discuss with you risk and ongoing management. You talked in your presentation about the different ways that conflicts and disputes can be minimised. Um, could you just discuss a couple of these points further for us? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the things that I think the survey recognised or the respondents in the survey recognised was that risk management works best if it begins early and it's carried out across the life cycle of the project. And really here, what is key is a regular contract review. So as you just said, it's important that parties are familiar with the contract but also that they are dipping back into the contract every time an issue arises so that they understand what they need to be doing. Um, I, look, I certainly see that as being par for the course for experienced clients or contractors, but then there are perhaps other teams that we come across that might take the approach of you know, being familiar with the contract at the beginning, but then um, moving more towards things that might just happen on site and are more agreed as opposed to being strictly in line with the contract. I think that's really to be avoided. I also spoke about dispute review boards and how these are um, something that we're seeing increasingly used. If you don't know what that is, or if the audience doesn't know what that is, it's a, uh, it's a creature of contract and it's essentially um, a, a group of decision makers who are meant to be um, uh, put in place at the outset of a project and across the life of a project, they can have disputes referred to them. Um, what they actually do it depends upon what the, the parties agreed. Um, they, can, they can have the ability basically to give their view on things, which might help parties resolve issues, or they can um, give a, a binding um, decision, which might um, only be reversed by reference to arbitration. So that's certainly something to think about. And um, I'd also add in that compromise across the life of the project can be of huge assistance in um, avoiding formal dispute later on. Um, and, and really, I think if you look at um, compromise and methods of achieve, achieving compromise, such as mediation, um, these can be terrifically effective in avoiding a formal dispute. So it's really about um, thinking about when an issue becomes difficult and, and potentially subsequently contentious how parties can take steps um, before that actually happens to seek a resolution. And often I think trying to do that at the time that the issue arises uh, is likely to be more successful than arguing it out before a tribunal um, four, five, seven years later. I completely see your point about um, continually returning to the contract. I can imagine it's quite easy at the beginning of a project to go through the contract in detail and plan ahead um, in terms of what, what is required to conform to the contract. And then possibly a couple of years down the line, relying on, on, on what's happening on site, as you said, as opposed to um, what is really required by the contract. And at the time, that might seem acceptable to the parties, but when subsequently dispute arises, um, you know, the issue can be much more um, contentious. So, you know, as you said, the key is know your contract. So you discussed briefly early case management, and it seems that early evaluation of facts and gaining understanding of the potential merits and pitfalls in a respective dispute are key. Please can you tell us more about early case assessment and how it can assist with disputes avoidance? So for early case assessment, this would normally or usually involve the legal team becoming involved uh, to carry out an assessment of the merits of the case. Uh, so this is really something that we would see clients coming to us with when um, they think that they have a particular right and they'd like to get a better understanding of it. And it's usually before um, the matter's referred to arbitration, um, but after the parties have been fleshing it out between themselves for a while. And I think the value of this is, is really getting an independent party to take a look at it. Obviously, if you've got lawyers looking at it, then we're assessing what we think that the contract means based upon the facts as they are relayed to us. 
And I think the importance of getting this view before you run off to arbitration, and I mean, I say that a little bit flippantly, but no party I've ever met has gone to arbitration without thinking carefully about whether to do that or not. But this really just gives you hopefully a better understanding of the strength of your position and the strength or weaknesses of your counterparty's position. And I think that that can be invaluable in, in informing you about whether you should be focusing more on trying to achieve a compromise um, or whether actually if the other side uh, or your counterparty is being unreasonable, whether you want to push forward and incur the, the costs of arbitration and take on the risks of arbitration to, um, to achieve, hopefully achieve a better position in arbitration. And so that's, that's very much going to be based upon the facts that you can re relay to your legal counsel. But we see that as being a pretty important stage um, before arbitration proceedings are commenced, if, they're, um, if they look likely. Thanks, Sarah. It seems to me as well that um, case assessment should be a sort of continuing thing that um, both parties and their legal representatives should be doing as the case progresses, because it seems that the initial thoughts about potential merits and pitfalls may evolve and change as more becomes known about the case. So that seems something that the party should um, continue to um, engage with. Yeah, you, you make a really good point there, Francis, because I think that sometimes if you carry out the early case assessment quite early on, that will flag to you that further investigation might need to be undertaken. So when I was talking earlier about doing a root cause analysis, our view as lawyers might be we don't have sufficient uh, facts to advise you on this as fully as we'd like to and so maybe you'd like to go away and do something else and so I think you're entirely right to be saying that um, thinking about this across the course of the project is um, is a useful exercise. A lot of a lot of interesting um, information today and a lot of information that's hopefully relevant to our clients about what can be done uh, throughout the life cycle of a project really to help um, avoid and or mitigate um, disputes. So thanks a lot for your time today, Sarah. And we look forward to joining everyone next time to discuss further topical issues impacting on the construction and infrastructure sectors.